Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. Hey, it's Morgan Lee. You are listening to Quick to Listen. Each week, we go beyond hashtags and hot takes and set aside time to explore the reality behind a major cultural event. Today, we're talking about a church bombing in Cairo, Egypt, that killed at least 25 Coptic Christians this Sunday. I'm Morgan Lee, and I'm assistant editor here at Christianity Today. And as always, kind of as always, I'm joined by Mark Galley, CT's editor-in-chief. Hello. On this cold winter day in Chicago. How cold is it, Mark? Oh, it's not too bad right now, about 15 degrees, but by the end of the weekend, it should be negative 15 degrees, if not lower. You and I both spent stints in California, and look where we are. I know. God had strange plans for people. It appears that way. So, Mark, who are we talking to today? We're talking with Jason Casper. He's uh, Christianity Today's Middle Eastern correspondent. I'm really excited to talk with him because I've seen his byline in our pages for for many years now, and uh, he's the best correspondent we've had in that area, so I'm glad to have a chance for him to be on the show here. Hey, Jason. Hey, how are you guys? Good. Where where are you calling us from? Uh, Right at home, Cairo, Egypt. There you go. Our longest correspondent ever. Well, thank you for bearing us with us through the time change and the thousands of miles away. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks. This week, as I mentioned, we are going to be talking about a suicide bombing in Cairo, Egypt. So at least 25 Coptic Christians died after a suicide bomber blew himself up in a church on Sunday. And the terrorist attack was actually the worst to target cops since the 2011 New Year's bombing of a church in Alexandria that killed 23 people. St. Peter and St. Paul Church, which is the church that was blown up, is next to the prominent St. Mark's Cathedral and the papal residence of the Pope of the Coptic Orthodox Church in Egypt and worldwide. And the bombing comes several months after a relatively significant victory for Egypt's Christians. Earlier this year, the government voted to end a 160-year-old practice that was instituted by the Ottomans that required Christians to get permission from the country's top leader before building churches. But perhaps maybe this gesture um, that was made by the government shouldn't be that surprising. The New York Times noted that, quote, the Coptic Church has been among President Sisi's staunchest supporters. Um, And at the same time, the support has been under stress as cops have been increasingly subject to attacks in the northern part of the country. Today, we want to take a closer look at Egypt's Christian community, which is roughly 10% of the country's population. Cops themselves represent about 90% of Egyptian Christians. So what do they believe? How do their beliefs affect their politics and their political engagement? And how far back in church history do they really go? Before we do all of that, I just wanted to have a moment for a gut check where Mark and I can give you our brief reaction after hearing the news about this bombing, and then we'll delve into the bigger discussion. So, Mark, let's hear it from you. Well, uh, as is to be expected, I was deeply saddened to hear about this, but this this has a more personal connection with me than most international news stories, because I one of the things I do in my off time to help secure my retirement is I'm a landlord of a couple of apartments, and one of my tenants is an Egyptian family who is here trying to gain asylum, um, and they are Copts. 
So whenever I hear news about the Coptic Church in Egypt, they are from Egypt, uh, I have a, a more personal connection, and I tend to talk to them about how they feel about it, if they knew anybody there, that sort of thing. So it was a, probably a little deeper layer of sadness upon hearing it. Did they specifically move here because of the violence in their country? Yes, and specifically because they're cops and because they felt they were in danger. So when I heard the news, obviously I was also deeply sad as well. Earlier this year, there was an Easter attack on Christians in Pakistan. And so whenever there's something associated with the holidays, it, it just really, really devastates me. I've at times covered Egypt more closely, though a little bit less since we have such a great correspondent that writes all these Egypt pieces. But it kind of jolted me back to all the different times when I was writing about it more consistently. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, I wonder what's going on with the politics over there. And I guess I felt a little bit disoriented because I realized that I did not necessarily know where cops stood with the most recent president. Jason, I'm just wondering, can you give us a sense of where this latest episode of violence against Christians fits into what Christians have been experiencing in the past five to 10 years? Yeah, certainly. The bombing was really just, a, in one sense, it was shocking. It caught people off guard. And then in some senses, it was almost a sense of resignation, I almost am afraid to say. The region has seen so much troubles over the past five to 10 years. And a lot of that has missed Egypt. Egyptian Christians are very thankful for that. But this bombing was something that was so horrific because it was, it was targeting the people. A lot of the violence that has happened over in Egypt in the last five years or so has, has targeted institutions. It, it's attacked churches or attacked buildings or has been uh, spillovers of communal violence, things that are bad in their own sense, but you know, a, a deliberate effort to, to murder, in this case, mostly women and children. I mean, this is something that is very, very strange and, and is potentially a new page in the way that the extremist elements might be targeting Egyptian Christians and then other Muslims as well. The the only event that's comparable to it, and it really is a bookend if you want to look at it in terms of the Arab Spring and how we call that, is, is what you, you spoke about in the New Year's bombing of 2011. That was also a, a deliberate attempt. It was a car bomb that exploded outside of a church. So several people died, but because it took place outside of the church, it was something that was certainly an unprecedented assault at that moment for Egypt. This was somebody who was able to get on the inside. And uh, that adds another element that says there's a, a degree of evil here that really hasn't been seen in a long time. Right now, Christians have the support, ostensibly, of the president, President Sisi. So that makes me wonder, who are the cops' enemies? There really needs to be a lot of nuance put to something like that. The attack on uh, the Sunday was recently claimed just a day or two ago by, by ISIS. So in that sense, yes, we've, we, we've known for a while that uh, the Islamic State is an enemy of the Egyptian Christians, of Christians around the world. Uh, they're the ones that beheaded the Christians in Libya, and that episode from about uh, you know a year or that two ago. That was a bunch of point. Coptic Christians too, right? This was the massacre yeah, that occurred that, on the beach. That's right. And that when that massacre took place, it was deliberately targeted to this is against the Church of Egypt. And what has happened is that because the uh, support that Egyptians Christians community has given to the current president, but it goes deeper than that as well. In this sense, the enemy of the Egyptian Christians would, in a sense, oppose them even just for, for being there in the country. They have a vision of Islam and the, the necessity of Islamic dominance of society, of government and everything. And Egyptian Christians and their assistance on being treated as citizens are an affront 
to that understanding in and of themselves. So there are various rationales that are given this the Islamic understanding, but even to do this sort of bombing has probably distanced themselves from many of the other, moderate is always a difficult term to use, but the more mainstream type of Islamist groups that have similar complaints about the Coptic community and their joining in the popular revolution that unseated the Muslim Brotherhood president. But these are the groups that have found themselves to say that they're an easy scapegoat for what went wrong. And we're going to pour out our anger on these groups. And perhaps to some degree, those who want to use it in the Islamic State sort of capacity to say, if we can pour out our anger and the blame and everything that has gone wrong in this region, combined with our ambitions to elevate Islam as a comprehensive system onto this religious minority of the Christians, then that is something they hope can polarize society even more. In that sense, really, it doesn't work very well because Egypt always tends to rally around Christians at moments like this. But over time, they're hoping to hammer and hammer and hammer the Christians of Egypt and just put so much pressure on the current government that it itself might internally collapse. As, as I mentioned again in the overview, 10% of the country identifies as Christian and COPS identifies the majority of that. There's also another 10% that I want to mention right now. Are these, Jason, basically evangelicals, Protestants at large? How would you identify that other group? One thing maybe just to clarify, in the term COPT itself, simply means Egyptian. And so when you're speaking of the Christians of Egypt, more or less, they all consider themselves to be Copts. And even, in fact, there's a few Muslims who will say, I'm a Copt as well. I'm an Egyptian in that ancient sense. Those are few. But when we focus on the, the Christians, it would be better to say that roughly 90% of the Christians of Egypt would be Coptic Orthodox. And the remainder would be some division of Coptic Catholics or Coptic Evangelicals, as they call themselves here. Now, the numbers are always hard to gauge, and there's really no firm statistics on that. But what you said is, is a fair way to break it down. Uh, I might guess that the Protestants are a little bit higher in numbers than the Catholics, but really both of them are dwarfed by the overwhelming preponderance of the Orthodox Church and really both the Catholic and the Protestant community consider the Orthodox Church to be the mother church of Egypt in that sense. So there's good relations in that respect between the three groups? They go up and down. I would say that at the moment, they're in a good place. Uh, we'd have to delve into the history to explore some of the times when they've been in tension, but it's easy enough to say that when the Catholics first came and you know later on when the Protestants came, there was a sense of conversion from one Christian sect into another, accusations of sheep stealing, and these things tend not to make good relations between leadership. That changed dramatically at the beginning of the Arab Spring when the churches together realized, well, we have a greater threat against us in the emergence of the Islamist groups, the Muslim Brotherhood, Salafi Muslim trends. And a lot of these peripheral differences between the denominations started to dissolve away. Certainly at the popular level, they did that. And so today, you'll when you talk to an Egyptian on the street and they identify, oh, I'm an Orthodox Christian or I'm a Protestant Christian, the almost universal response will be to say, uh, we're all one in Christ. We all serve the same God. Uh, and certainly less animosity between the Christian people of any one denomination. Now, various leaders still hold over 
attitudes of uh, suspicion or things like that. But really, even in that sense, there's been a dramatic change in the past five years that I have noticed. Our listeners might appreciate hearing a little bit more about what the Orthodox, the Coptic Orthodox Church brings to the table, because it's, it's kind of an exotic, from our point of view here in America, certainly. Uh, Coptic Orthodoxy sounds so exotic, and yet when you put it in historical context, you can see why some of the, the Protestants and Catholics in Egypt are more respectful of it. I mean, it was started, uh, the tradition, it was started by St. Mark, one of our gospel writers. Uh, it is the first Christian communion to, uh, to start what would be, we'd call a Christian school, a Christian school of higher education, the Catechetical School of Alexandria. They started that whole tradition. Um, they, they are famous for their, their great theologians, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, and especially Athanasius, who cemented Christian orthodoxy. And we see that, we see his uh, effects in the Nicene Creed, for example, that churches all across the world recite regularly. And he's from Alexandria. He's, he was the Pope of Alexander, Alexandria for, for decades. They, they are also the Orthodox churches of the church that out of which monasticism grew. St. Anthony of the Desert is the most famous Christian monk, and he's the first. He's a Copt. He comes from Upper Egypt. Uh, many people today refer to the Desert Fathers when they're trying to think about how to be a Christian in the world today. They'll refer to the Desert Fathers. Well, most of those Desert Fathers were Desert Fathers in the deserts of Egypt. So the Orthodox Church in Egypt, the Coptic Orthodox Church, has left a tremendous heritage to worldwide Christianity. And I just think as we reflect on it in times like this, it's just good for us to remind that's the connection we have with them. And those are pretty profound connections. I could even add one more. The uh, The Orthodox Church considers itself to be a church of martyrs. They date their church calendar going back to the reign of Diocletian. And so that era of Roman history, when so many Christian martyrs were being uh, offered and refusing to sacrifice to the emperor and deny their faith in Christ, so many of these people were Egyptians as well. And that has informed the, the consciousness of the Egyptian uh, Christian Orthodox Church for centuries. And so when events like this take place nowadays, like the events in Libya, they are equipped to deal with it. They can say, this has always happened to us in our history. It is how God has treated us, and he preserves us through it as we are faithful to him in this presentation of martyrs generation after generation. I'm going to take the time just to remind all of our listeners that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to our magazine. Thank you, everyone. Jason frequently contributes to our magazine. I've read some really great pieces for him. One of the most interesting pieces I thought was about churches that were being built in Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states. So I highly recommend becoming a subscriber to CT because you can read that article. If you do subscribe, we charge $10 for all of our podcast listeners. If you go to orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen, and you can get a lot of interesting and news coverage. I think that one of the things that makes us so special is kind of the scope and breadth and depth of our international coverage. We, in fact, just did a big cover story on India, which I encourage everyone else also to check out. So let's get back to this conversation. Jason, I'm wondering if you can give us a sense of who the important players in the church are today. Everything comes back to the Pope. His name is uh, Pope Tuadros II. Tuadros is a, a variant of Theodore, and he has been the uh, Pope of the Orthodox Church since 2012. He's the successor of Pope Shenouda III, who was a beloved figure who held the seat of Alexandria for the past 40 years prior to that. 
Can you tell us a little bit about what popes do? Right. It kind of goes against the, the common understanding of there's just one pope, the pope in Rome. What the Orthodox view is going back to the early Christian understanding of, of five historic sees of Christianity. And so Rome is one of those. Uh, Antioch is another, Constantinople. Uh, Jerusalem might have to just verify the history, but Alexandria is one of those places. And so these historic patriarchs, if we want to call them by that term, were those that were responsible for the greatest centers of Christianity, and they were all held in equal esteem with each other, even as they had their agreements and power struggles and all of that over history. So the Pope of Alexandria, the Pope of the Coptic Orthodox Church, considers himself an equal with the Pope in the Vatican, for example. His flock is primarily concerned with the hundreds or so dioceses spread throughout Egypt, but then they're also, because of the Coptic diaspora, present in several uh, dioceses in the United States and Canada, in Europe, in Australia, and other places around the world. So uh, when we think of the Coptic Orthodox Church, we very much think of its Egyptian character, but this is beginning to change in uh, in the world as it's developing. And it really does have an international scope. Now, the way the church runs its affairs is the pope is pretty much in charge of everything. He is served by a bishop for each diocese. There's, you know, 100 plus in the world, as I say. And some of those bishops are very influential. Others of them just take care to supervise the flock under their care. Uh, They come and they go, and they're ones that the pope might favor and then let another pope come up and make changes. But by and large, everyone, everything flows through his person. It's a very hierarchical system. Are there other influential Coptic Orthodox Christians or Protestants or Catholics who are in government? The Protestant churches have a figure who is at the head of their umbrella organization, which licenses before the government all of the different Protestant entities in, in you know, their you know, Baptists or Brethren or Pentecostals, however they constitute themselves in Egypt. There is one figure who represents them before the government. And then the, the Coptic Catholics also have a similar figure who, when things are determined at a government level and they have to take the opinion, what do the Christians think, they pull these three figures together for consultation. Now, pretty much everyone defers to the Orthodox Pope, but the Catholic and the evangelical heads of communities also have a say in those matters. Now, within the government and civil society, there are Christians who are prominent, but they're not represented very well in the government at this moment. And they tend to kind of come and go. Coptic civil society is is one of the issues that's very important in uh, understanding the nature of the Christian community in Egypt these days. Uh, And it affects the church matters as well. There are times when the church takes a leadership role uh, over the entire Coptic community. Then there are times when the church seems to to pull back, and then other lay figures are able to take leadership positions or speak in the name of the church. This is a period of time where the church does seem to have a representative understanding of Coptic citizens are, are ours to protect, are ours to represent before the government, ours to speak on their behalf. There are some cops that are very happy with that, for them to take that role. They say that they are our best protectors. There are others who would say that uh, this political sense, this representational sense of the church goes beyond its spiritual role and essence, and it actually stunts the growth of our community. So there is that internal discussion going on among many Coptic figures 
it's an open debate as to the nature of Egyptian society, Arab Muslim society, which one works best. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. I'm wondering if you can take us from the time when Mubarak was president, so that was last in 2011, to then under President Morsi to Sisi and kind of explain how the cop situation has maybe suffered, um, but kind of prevailed, depending on what type of political leadership that they've had. A lot of this can be tied into as well the relationship that the church has had with the state authorities. Pope Shenouda, the one who was uh, presiding over the Orthodox Church for 40 years, after an initial rocky period with the state, under Mubarak especially, developed a fairly decent relationship in which each one relied on the other to secure what was necessary either for the state or for the Christian community. And so at this period of time, the relationship was very much between those two central patriarchal figures, heads of state, the fathers of their communities. So if there was a church that needed to be built, the Pope would go to the president, President Mubarak, and it wouldn't be built. The cops were understood to be supporters of the regime because if it wasn't for the president, then who else would come to power? The Muslim Brotherhood, some of the uh, other more extremist Islamic groups that were sometimes at war with the state. The uh, political support of Christians was represented in these two figures. Now, all during that time, when relationships were fair, there was also the ongoing periodic attacks that would happen on Christian communities. Perhaps there was a church that was trying to be built in a certain village, and some of the Muslims of the village didn't want a church. So there would be a, a period of mob violence that would come and, and, and destroy the church or attack the families or a few businesses. And then this would be pacified very quickly by the police to put authority and stability back in that area, cordon things off, and then have some sort of a, what they would call a, a reconciliation meeting, where the religious leaders of the area would come in and they would offer forgiveness, they would say things are okay, and, and very rarely were people ever prosecuted for the crimes that were committed in situations like this. So I'm going into the detail here because to understand that whether it was the rumor of a church being built or a love affair between a Muslim and a Christian or, or some property dispute, these little local incidences would sometimes spark sectarian violence. 
And this would not be happening all the time, but it would come and it would go and the problems were never solved and it was allowed to fester. But at the leadership level, things were okay and pretty much people accepted the situation as they did. It was 40 years in Egypt, nothing ever changed. Then at the Arab Spring, things did change and nobody knew what to do with this. Nobody knew what was happening. The Most of the church authorities at that time were very reluctant to embrace this revolution even though some of the Coptic youth were at the forefront of leading these changes and calling for change in a new society. But eventually, once the revolution succeeded, the whole society got on board and got excited. A new page is coming, a new democratic page, a new time of freedom. This was also an opportunity for the Islamist groups to get on board with that. And they were among the ones calling for democracy. They felt they would be the winners if this was put to the vote of the people. And so during this time, uh, it was also the final days of Pope Shenouda, and eventually he died, and it took a little while to find the new pope. So during this period, the, the Coptic community, apart from religious leadership, kind of came forward and started leading things. At the same time, the threat of the Muslim Brotherhood was something that was beginning to bring all of the Christians together to say, what are we going to do? How are we going to push through this? Can you tell people what the Muslim Brotherhood is? The, the Muslim Brotherhood was founded, I believe, in 1928. It was the mother organization for the idea that says, we lost our caliphate. At the end of World War II, the, the Ottoman Empire, the caliphate that existed for the first time in Muslim history, disappeared. And it left Muslims with a terrible void. What do we do now? What is this new world where we do not have political leadership for our entire community? And so as the world was broken up into nation states and Europe and Christian societies were starting to take prominence all around the world, the Muslim Brotherhood was a reactionary movement to say, how do we go back to our religion? How do we renew our faith in Islam that God would again honor us with the leadership that he has bequeathed us in his system for, for governing the world, in fact. And so there were elements of that that were religiously violent in terms of jihad. There were other trends that were more political or, or seeking democracy or reform. But it was kind of a, an umbrella group for a lot of people that were trying to revive Islam in its essence to promote the cause of Muslims around the world and eventually to get back a political representation that they believe is part and parcel of their religion that goes beyond what we as Christians kind of understand, at least in the modern day, is this is my relationship with God and politics is something else. For many Muslims, and certainly Islamist groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, there is no distinction and our religion must be political and must be centered into a state and society that is organized around God's principles. Because the Muslim Brotherhood several years ago backed candidate Morsi at that time, you're saying that that made the Christians in Egypt nervous that he had this backing. Um, and then after he was elected, they continued being uneasy with that relationship. That's right. President Morsi was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. He was an essential part of their leadership structure. And so he was the one that was put forward as a candidate. There were several candidates. Others were Islamists that were non-Brotherhood. There were liberal candidates. There were a representative, in a sense, of the old Mubarak regime. And the competition between them was very fierce. And in the end, the Muslim Brotherhood candidate, Mohammed Morsi, was declared the victor. Now, during his time in office, I wouldn't say that things changed terribly for the Christian community. All of the 
sporadic community-based sectarian incidents that I described continued to happen during his period of time. I wouldn't say necessarily that they increased. They might have a little bit. But there wasn't a, a qualitative change in that day-to-day -day life. Uh, what did change was the sense of the direction of the country. Because under Mubarak, everything was understood to be a semi-secular type of system where everyone had their place and it was understood. But now with the Muslim Brotherhood, with this great swell of we can finally re-implement our religion and our religious system, the rhetoric of the country started to change and Christians started being afraid. Because what Christians want in Egypt is equal citizenship. They want to be treated part and parcel of the Egyptian society. They've been there forever. Now, that isn't necessarily denied by most of the Islamist groups. Now, the Islamic State denies it categorically. They say we want to go back to a, a system of uh, what they call dhimma, in which Christians are second-class citizens in law, and they have to pay a tribute just to have protection in society. But the Muslim Brotherhood didn't really talk that way, but yet their understanding of society is that it's a Muslim society, an Islamic society. And so Christians, while they were stated, yes, you have equal rights in our system, it was because we give them to you as Muslims because God allows you this place in the community. And so that change in rhetoric very much unnerved them, and the Muslim Brotherhood also aligned itself with other of the more radical Salafi groups whose vision, though not necessarily violent, aligned with some of the principles that we see in the Islamic State, for example. Now, Christians weren't the only ones concerned about it. Many, many Muslims were appalled by what the Muslim Brotherhood was bringing to the table. And that's kind of what led to this coup, you would say, to overthrow Morsi and instate the, the current president? Calling it a coup is a very controversial word in Egypt, and Egyptian Christians reject that out of hand. What they say, the interpretation here, is that because of the poor governance of the Muslim Brotherhood, because of the vision that they were bringing to society and the trends that they were introducing, that Egyptian society turned away from them. And the protests that went against Mohamed Morsi were even greater in number than those that went against President Mubarak in the original revolution. And so in the negotiations that were taking place, there, there's plenty of room to analyze what was going on behind the scenes, what was being manipulated, what was being put forward. But the understanding here that most Egyptian Christians have is that the Muslim Brotherhood would not yield to the will of the people to have early presidential elections so that there would be another referendum on the president's term. And so when they failed to give into that and the protest continued, that is when the military stepped in as interpreted to be the will of the people must be respected. And so at that point, Morsi was deposed, and then there was an interim president, and the military leader at that time eventually took off his military clothes ran for president, and won in an overwhelmingly 95% of the vote, perhaps, went to him in the end. It was a popular understanding that was embraced by the whole of Egyptian society, including the Muslims, that were offended by the Muslim Brotherhood Islamist version that they were bringing to the table. Now, how to properly represent those numbers, of course, is worthy of discussion and, and one of the uh, points of contention between those people who now say Christians included, that what we have in President Sisi and this, this new regime is the will of the Egyptian people. There are the 
Islamist, the Muslim Brotherhood holdouts that are boycotting, have boycotted the system to say, no, this is not right what was done. And many in the international community also say this was not done according to proper democratic norms. And that has caused a significant point of tension between Egypt and the rest of the international community. I know that many of our listeners really care a lot about the persecuted church. I'm wondering if you could just name maybe two or three things that you think that our listeners could be praying for for Egyptian Christians right now. Well, certainly right now, the the primary thing is is safety. What happened this past Sunday in the bombing is uh, a scary event. There has been ongoing terrorism in Egypt for many years, and it's not targeted civilians. It's targeted the police and the military. And so for people to go in and actually destroy women and children who are worshiping, and then in their declaration of the responsibility for this, to then say we're going to do it more and more, there's definitely a need for the state, for society, to be able to clamp down on this and prevent it from happening. And so that's the first prayer request. The second prayer request, I would say, that Egyptian Christians would speak on their own sense is that the state would become stable and the economy would rebound. Because of all the revolutionary changes, because of terrorism, because the depreciation of the Egyptian pound, the economy right now in Egypt is in a very difficult position, and the government is suffering as a result of that. So Christians would pray for stability for their country in a region that is full of war of you know, 10 times worse than what could have happened in Egypt. But yet, they're still fearful that that future might come to us if we're not able to rebound. And so that livelihood of all Egyptians would be able to find the jobs, to be able to subsidize the poor for their essential uh, foodstuffs, and jobs would be made available for, for others. Investment would come. Tourists would come back to Egypt. These things are what Egyptian Christians are praying for, by and large, as, uh, as a community. Of course, we can be spiritual as well. I mean, the the, the Christians are, are praying that what has happened would, would would not happen again, but yet that this is what God has given us. And so many of the Christians are praying, God, why? But what can come out of this? How do we struggle to continue to love our enemies? How do we pray for those who are persecuting us? That spirit, though very difficult to summon, is present among many, many Egyptian Christians. Thanks for sharing all of that, Jason. That was really good. So I encourage anyone who has more questions about this or has feedback to share their thoughts and analysis or questions with us on Twitter at CT Podcasts or on Facebook at facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. So now we're going to call Slow to Speak, which is when we hear from you, our listeners, and get a sense of what you've been thinking about what we've recorded recently. And so last week we had a pretty spirited discussion on the podcast that was looking at the question, are Trump's white evangelical supporters racist? And we heard from a lot of you, which was awesome. Thank you for reaching out on Twitter and on Facebook and sharing with us what you thought. So I asked Mark if he could share with us a couple of the responses from all of you guys. Uh, One was from Lighthouse at Grace. This was on Facebook. This was a fantastic discussion on race in the church. As an associate pastor of a multicultural church, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is for well-meaning Christians to realize their role of complicity in the discrimination and racism that exists in the evangelical church. Kudos to Morgan for moderating such a productive discussion. 
I hope this will help some Christians realize the role they have in rooting out prejudice and discrimination, especially if it needs to begin from within. Keep up the good work. And then from uh, Sam, ha- ha- boy, here we go. From Sam Van Hofwegen. Yeah, sorry, Sam. Sam Van Hofwegen. On Twitter. He says, you guys should have an actual Christian Trump supporter on the podcast, one of his many minority supporters who can explain why they voted for him, not only assume that it was due to racism or the lesser of two evils argument. Another good comment. I would encourage uh, comments. I would even encourage critical comments because I do learn a lot from them. You have a greater odds of having your comment read and noted if you actually engage with the real arguments or statements that were made on the podcast and not just call names or assume somebody's bad motives. But we'd love to entertain more of these uh, replies as the months go on. Yeah. So push back, but don't assume... We are going to switch gears right now, and we're going to have the segment of the show that we call Precious Moments, time where we go around and we ask everyone that's on the show to share something that is bringing them joy. And then if you're online and you want people to follow you someplace online, point people to there. So Jason, can you go first? Yeah, sure. Just the other day, I was uh, at a, a church service, the first one after the bombings of uh, on Sunday. And there was just a magnificent musician uh, who played the oud, a, a traditional Arabic instrument. And as he played and as the people were worshiping, I was just in that sense of this is godly. This is good. This is something that is helping me connect with God in the midst of all the suffering. And it was really a beautiful moment that I was appreciating and brought a little bit of joy in the middle of the tragedy. Thanks for sharing. Are you on Twitter? Yes. Yes, J and J Casper. Uh, I have a website we call a sense of And uh, every Friday I do my best to, to write a prayer for Egypt that uh, touches the events of the past week that Muslims and Christians and whatever the orientation might be able to pray together that the issues of this country could uh, be given to God and he might find solutions for them. Boy, hearing that, that gives me joy. <laughs> There's something like that going on. Uh, Morgan knows that I. one of the things I like to do at our weekly prayer meeting is to share well-written prayers, thoughtful prayers for various occasions. And so I'm glad you're doing that, Jason. That's just awesome. Thank you. On a less noble note, I think uh, if we're talking about what brings me joy in the last couple hours, I finally got my winter snow tires put on my car. And being kind of a nerdy guy who likes to do things like that, when they were finally put on, and I'm driving around town, in your just made me in my minivan. That made me happy. Winter is really here. Besides all the new clothes we're putting on and the hats and the gloves, the car is now outfitted for the winter as well. And Mark, where can people... Uh, I don't do Twitter or Facebook, but I do have a weekly newsletter called The Galley Report. And if you uh, go on to Christianity Today website, christianitytoday.com slash Report, it can indicate how to sign up for that. It's a free newsletter. So my moment of joy this week is this weekend I am going to go to Michigan and see three of my friends that I went to college with. And they're all people that I met the first day of school. And one of them is a husband and wife who have been living over in Michigan for the past five years, and he has been getting his PhD at U of M, and he will be defending it in January. And so they think that they are going to be leaving Michigan for wherever his job takes him. So this is probably the last time that we are going to be able to spend together while they're still in driving distance. So I'm really looking forward to hanging out with them. I think we will sit inside and play board games and make food. 
And then my sister is coming on Sunday. So she'll be staying with me for two weeks, which I'm also excited about. That's it for us. Thank you so much to everyone for listening to another episode of Click to Listen. This podcast is a production of Christianity Today. You can find our other podcast by searching iTunes for Christianity Today or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to head to orderct.com slash quick to listen to subscribe for our lowest price. The show is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Allred. And if you like the show, make sure to rate and review us on iTunes. It's fun when you tell us on Twitter or Facebook that you like the show, but that's really the best way to do that. See you all next week. Bye.